Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Tyler, what kind of coffee are you drinking? I'm having just generic Target brand coffee. Well, but what, I put, what kind of cream are you putting in it? Uh, French vanilla. French vanilla, yeah. With, uh, with uh, two Splendas as well. I caught a whiff just, uh, just as we started to, to record. Yeah, it, did, it does sm- smell good. I'm a black coffee type of guy. You know... It's so interesting. One of the best days of my life is the day that I stopped caring what people thought about how I drank my coffee. Um, why, why did you care before? Uh, just because people are assholes, and especially like in high school and stuff. Like, uh, just you look for, or I guess whether you look for it or not, there are just these arbitrary... Um, signifiers of masculinity and obviously Ah. like oh you need uh, how many layers do you need but it's not even that cold look how manly i am what's that you want cream and sugar in your coffee i don't need that i drink my coffee black look how manly i am like that now granted nobody said it quite that way but that was definitely how it came out and uh and so i forced myself to drink black coffee for a long time because certain friends and acquaintances were clearly paying attention and uh it was okay. a uh, it was something that i felt yeah, I, I, I get about. that I, I i get that but um this is like what i was saying on the podcast last week like uh yeah that's for yourself yeah. what's cool exactly and, and that's, that could be that could be cool and that's um, and that's eventually what i what i did and and it, so much so that so i'm part of a, a a dad's group on face like a twin dad's group on facebook and Every once in a while, you'll get you'll get a little a little burst of of this on there. I'm sure. And yeah. uh, and somebody was talking about coffee, and you know, talking about like black coffee being like like the only. I, I don't remember the phrasing, but essentially what I'm talking about. And uh, and then I uh, in the in the comments, I just said like French vanilla creamer and uh, two Splendas for me, thank you. I'm I, I'm good. Yeah, uh, I stopped drinking. <laughs> good. I believe I said I stopped drinking that bitter shit uh, when I realized that uh, I don't care what anybody else thinks. So uh, nothing against you uh, for uh, for drinking black coffee, of course. No, but I, I just I'm both happy for you and sad for you that this was bothering you for so long. But I'm happy that you're living your truth now. I, um, <laughs> yes, I put that in the comments too. People didn't love that one. Um, Here's the I will say. And nothing to do with manliness. The one major upside to taking your coffee black is if you're is if you're in a situation where someone else is getting coffee for you, it's so easy to just be like, "Yes, don't worry about it." Uh, that, that's when it's easy. I will often just say, "Don't worry about it." Like, don't don't get me anything. Oh, okay. Um, but also, it's. I mean, I prefer French vanilla. I'm here. This is the coffee I drink at home. Regular creamer is fine. Regular sugar is fine. All, as and most places will have your Splendas, your Equals, your Sweet and Low. I do not care. That's the pink one, I believe. Okay. Uh, sweet and Low is too much for me. Like the, it tastes too inherently artificial, even in coffee. And uh, so that one, I can't. I can't do. You know, I was, today I was listening to a podcast, um, a, a college football podcast um, that has been around for a long time, and they. Uh, once a month on their Patreon, they do an episode in which they talk about something other than college football. Okay. And I was thinking, like, it's kind of weird that the Patreon patrons want that. I wonder if our patrons would want us to do that. I guess we kind of did it with, like, the celebrity sightings a little bit, which you haven't done in a while. It's still, but, it still qualifies, I feel yeah, like. It's movie. Because what I was trying yeah. to think is, 
like you and I both have interests outside of movies and TV, yeah. but there's not the many. Venn diagram. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying we, we have separate interests, sure. but the, the overlap is very like, if sure. we were going to do an episode about something other than movies and TV, what interests do we have that we share? <laughs> I guess it'd be, it could be a contentious, uh, episode about food or whatever, but I would get, uh, sure. But uh, I would get exasperated. With your but you know pickiness. what? But that's the thing is, it's not like I'm going to be like, no, my my taste is perfectly normal. I, everyone should do what I do. Um, no, I'm perfectly willing to acknowledge my own uh, craziness there. No, what I would say is the based on conversations we've had off mic lately, I would say what we have in common is certainly not politics, but it's tone tone of political conversation uh, oh, yeah, that is a thing talk. that you yeah. and I uh, but people wouldn't find that interesting they'd yeah. be like no we want people to argue we want right. uh, yeah. yeah that wouldn't ball. be interesting for people um, I guess uh, the other thing you and I have in common is like self doubt Sure. Depression. Yeah. Anxiety. Oh, we talk and, at length about imposter that. Imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, let's talk about something we do know about, which is movies, especially movies that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one. That's where you never go wrong. Exactly. Talking movies that you've actually seen. Uh, so I'm going to start by talking about uh, the latest movie from, um, uh, at this point, American indie filmmaker veteran Alexander Rockwell. Uh, it's called Sweet Thing. And it stars... Uh, his two kids, Lana Rockwell and Nico Rockwell. And it also stars his wife, their mother, the actress Karen Parson, Parsons or Parson, who played Hillary on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Oh, all right, yeah. I didn't know they were... Because I know he used to be married... Alexander Rockwell used to be married to Jennifer Beals. Oh. Because they both... Uh, there's an Italian film called uh, uh, Caro Diario. Um, it's sort of a, it's a great movie and they show up in the movie as themselves as a married couple. Um, so I didn't know that he wasn't with Jennifer Beals anymore. I guess I'm like trouble in paradise, I guess. (laughs) I think I'm an optimist that I I feel like it should be like when celebrities are married to each other, I should be, it should be the opposite. I should be surprised when they are still. Yes, absolutely. Um, that's why I'm so happy. Even though I don't care, there's something about, I, I I know you don't follow celebrity gossip to begin with, especially not now. I don't really either, but, um, Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez are like dating again. Um, I, I, I I, I don't care, but I'm also happy for them. Yeah. uh, But part of me is just like, Oh, but uh, Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner seem so happy. And this speaks. No, that was a long, long time ago. That was a long time ago, and they weren't happy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) See, I do know more about this than than you do. Yeah. Well, because the other thing that came up is apparently, I only saw this because it was in relation to the Ben Affleck, Jennifer Lopez thing. Uh, Someone said, like, I'm sensing a trend of, like, 90s couples getting back together. Angelina Jolie had dinner at Johnny Miller's apartment uh, recently. But apparently they've, like, stayed friends this entire time, so that isn't actually that out of the blue. All Um, right. What, What was... What was their what was their their name together in Hackers? Was it, was it sl- Slash and Burn or okay, something maybe. like that? It's been a long time. I don't yeah, remember, that but right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that right. chemistry was undeniable in uh, anyway, Hackers. How did we get there? How did we get to Hackers? <laughs> the uh, Fisher Stevens vehicle Hackers uh, from me talking about Alexander Rockwell's Sweet Thing. Oh uh, no! So the the uh, it's there's two kids there it's a it's this is definitely a uh, in the 
pantheon of coming of age movies about poor kids, which is very interesting because it's something you and I were recently talking about on the a Patreon episode that might not no it has aired. Um, the nineteen sixty nine yes that's um, aired yeah because I was talking about Ken Loach's Kess yes as being uh, one of the sort of foundational texts of the poor kid coming of age movie uh, and Sweet Thing is another one of of uh, of those you've got these two kids that are there they live with their father played by your favorite actor of all time will Patton um, who's a, a drunk and part time department store Santa Claus he doesn't bring in a lot of money doing that what money he does make tends to go to more alcohol so they sort of collect bottles and cans they have this scam going where they um put nails in tires for in in on parked cars in return for a kickback from the tire repair place so they're like little scammers trying to get you know trying to make it happen like they're scraping by their poor but they seem like they're generally like this three-person family unit dysfunctional but they're okay until Will Patton's drinking gets very out of control and they end up having to go live with their mom, Karen Parsons, Parson, I can't remember, uh, and her new boyfriend, which seems like a step up. They live by the beach. It seems like a much nicer place, uh, uh, but for reasons I won't spoil, it turns out to be an even worse situation. Something happens. They end up with, a, uh, with the two and a friend and sort of running away. And there's a there's a part early in the movie, kind of a bit of a foreshadowing, where uh, Billy, the girl played by Lana Nicole, is reading a bedtime story to Nico, played by Nico Rockwell. Uh, did I say Lana Nicole? Lana Rockwell. There we go. And Nico Rockwell. Reading to uh, Nico Rockwell, um, reading Peter Pan. And so that's kind of uh, what we're what we're getting at here when, yeah. they're, when they become runaways. Uh the movie itself is, you know, there's a lot of movies like this. I think this one's, um, it has a lot of uh, respect for the characters. It has a particular point of view. It has a lot of heart, and and it's not, um, it has vigor. It's not resting on cliche. I think it's, I, I think it's a well-made movie. It's mostly in black and white with certain scenes in in color. Um, there's a pretty clear scheme you come to realize as to why uh certain scenes are 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 in color um the cast is really good these two uh young non-actors or maybe they are actors i don't know um they're the director's kids uh are are good but also i need to look up renee if it's it's parsons or parson because she's really good in 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 the movie um so all in all i would say it's uh it's an above average entry in this Subgenre of coming of a poor kid yeah. coming of age movies, except I don't even know if that's if I can say it's Parsons plural. Um, if I can say above average, because I feel like the batting average for this type of movie is actually pretty high. Like, or maybe I just tend to think about the yeah better ones. You know, I think of like the Florida Project. Sure. You know, uh, did you ever see Pichote? The, uh, no, I didn't. Yeah, uh, that's that's one. Um, yeah, I mean, there are probably more bad. Well, Beast of the Southern Wild sucks, if you ask me. But um, I don't love it as much as some people do. But I can't. I can't say it sucks. There's enough there that is intriguing, certainly from an acting and character standpoint. And I do. And I really like the soundtrack. And I, it's. It's not a movie I love, but I do occasionally think about it because you get a, a real strong sense of place and tone and that sort of thing. Um, and you still haven't seen, I'm not trying to 
put you on the spot. You still haven't seen the 400 blows, right? I know. Yeah. That's, oh. that's my, yeah, that's, that's my, more, maybe my biggest blind spot. I also highly recommend little fugitive. That's one that, uh, right. I reviewed, reviewed for the site years ago. Yeah. yeah. And I knew nothing about it and it took me by surprise and I adore it. Uh, all right. My second movie, um, from a, another director that I'm a big fan of, a French director, Francois Ozone. His new film is called Summer of 85. Hmm. Um, and I was skeptical going in because I'm sick of 80s nostalgia, but um, that's not what this is, really. Right. Um, it's, it, it feels in some ways to so intentionally seem like it's referencing Call Me By Your Name because it's an 80s teenage male gay romance movie set in okay. the European, like a European small town. That's pretty specific. It, I'd it, say. Like in one of the characters is, is, is like a rich kid and lives in like a big sort of villa in the country. Like it, there are so many signifiers that are similar to call me by your name, except Francois Ozone's style is not at all like Luca Guadagnino's. It's not, it doesn't luxuriate. It's not, um, uh, uh, lush and patient. It's, uh, Francois Ozone is, um, he makes a lot of different types of movies, but uh, he's always had a little bit of the Hitch- Hitchcock to him and, yeah. and that sort of throwback. Yeah. Um, to, you know, he made Swimming Pool. That's I think a that Hitchcock might movie. Is that the um, only one of his I've seen? I don't remember now. Um, yeah, I made a movie a few years ago called Fronts. Uh, the first movie of his I ever saw was called Under the Sand. That's a great uh, movie, very sad. Um, uh, he also made a, uh, a musical called, was it called Eight Women? Is Eight that right? Eight Women, yes. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a lot of fun, but, um, so yeah, other than like those very superficial, uh, signifiers, the movie doesn't actually have a call me by your name type feel at all, but it's about, um, uh, a two boys who, who meet and have this sort of summer fling except, and then one of them and oh yeah, they make a, uh, I, there's so many things I don't want to give away about the movie actually. So I, 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 I won't say uh, I'll, I'll speak in more uh, broad terms. Um, the movie as a, as a, I, I don't know if romance is the right word because I don't know if you want to get into discussions of what is and isn't like real about love, you know, like, oh, um, let's talk about but, that on the, on the Patreon at some point. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, uh, in terms of capturing teenage, infatuation okay to where i mean whether or not we as adults with distance and maturity and experience and time can look at this and say you've known this kid for six weeks maybe you're not in love there's no denying that this kid feels like he's in love with this this other kid who's so magnetic and and um and and charismatic um and the the movie gets that level of consumption very well um to where it it has this character acting in ways that i think in the wrong hands would seem very silly very sort of uh histrionic yeah but francois zone's control of the tone of the movie and also the young actor um both of the young actors are 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 very good um but the one who plays alex who's the Lead his name is Felix Leferve. I'm not sure if I'm saying his right last name correctly. Um, he's so good that I I believe it. I believe that he's acting in these ways, not just like things he's saying, like literally physically 
acting out in ways that are so ridiculous. I, I believe it because he's so consumed that he doesn't know what else to do with his limbs. Um, uh, there's a, the, a, a, a fantastic sense of the summer and, um, what, what summer means at that age when you're, when you're a teenager, you know, I said, I said he's only known the kid six weeks or whatever, but six weeks to a teenager in the summertime is a, is a lifetime. Yeah. Um, and the movie gets that it's a a fantastically, uh, uh, evocative and, and, and moving, uh, movie that I'm, I'm really glad I saw. I really hope other people see it. And there's so many more things I could say about it, but there are things about the, the events that unfold that I don't want to give away. Um, not that it's like a Hitchcock movie in the sense that it has like twists and turns, but it does have, uh, uh, there's a couple of things that happen that you don't see coming, I guess. Um, but, uh, uh, so my not wanting to give it away is not because I'm like, Oh, it's an M night Shyamalan type of movie. I'm just saying I want to preserve certain elements of the experience that I had for other people. You know, I feel like, um, I have a lot, like, I, I immediately have questions about some of Ozone's choices, uh, about just the specifics of his film. And it leads me to think that, like, oh, we might get an episode out of this, specifically, like, period pieces. And, like, the choice, to, especially, I think we've done something about, like, somewhat recent period pieces. I don't know. Did we have, we talked about we doing talked that episode. About Did it. we actually do that episode? I don't remember anymore. We should have, we should look into it. We should definitely yeah. look into it if we decide we want to do it i think my knows, rule was maybe like, we did it 10 weeks ago my rule was like period pieces that take place less than 15 years before when the movie that came sounds out. right um and i don't think we actually did that for my for my let's say like 50 years my question is all right when you decide to place a movie at this particular time period is there something essential about about that time period to this story or did you or is it a little bit arbitrary or is it a period that the director is is just interested in or feels nostalgic for or whatever it is like what is it about that time period that is essential for this story i don't know it's yeah i think that is um that's maybe something we should have a, a guest on for yeah. um because i think sometimes i tend to just take things at face value there are certain choices that i just sometimes people ask like why is that movie in black and white or why is that movie in this no longer common aspect ratio and i feel like i should maybe think about that more but i tend to be like that just is i usually Uh, i usually do too um but i should think about it more it's it's rarely a thing that takes me out of, of a movie. And sometimes it's not something that I think about. Like if a movie is, you mentioned like aspect ratio and stuff like sometimes I'll, I'll really notice it even in a movie that I, that I really like other times. Uh, it's the only thing I can focus on because the movie hasn't, hasn't grabbed me. But, um, but something like that, Again, where, as I've said, like increasingly I think of film less as, a, as an inherently storytelling medium. But if you're going to tell a story, then everything, every choice you're making about that story, including when it takes place and where it takes place, that's a choice that you made. And was it made? Yeah. Was it made arbitrarily or uh, obviously not, uh, especially if you're going to shoot this thing, because now you have to fill in those period details. Clearly, it's important to you. Um I don't know. It's just something that, uh, that I think about. Um, 
Um, the aspect ratio thing I was mentioning, weirdly, with movies, I, 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 I tend to just say, like, man, that's the director's choice or whatever. Yeah. I'm a little harder on TV hmm. because I feel like the idea is a movie is quote unquote supposed to, I mean, movies, we watch them all different ways now, yeah. but the, a movie is in the, the platonic ideal of a movie is supposed to be shown in a movie theater and a movie theater. Again, the platonic ideal of a movie theater mm. has the ability to mask to whatever right. aspect ratio. So, it can be a choice and it's not distracting. Whereas a TV is 16 by nine. That's what all TVs yeah. are now. And so if you're making something intentionally for the television medium in an, in an aspect ratio other than 16 by nine or one seven, eight to one, yeah. um, it does take me out uh, a, a little bit. Um, I, I get over it pretty quick, but and I do. You can't I help, and it, it cannot help but call attention to itself. To me, I, yeah. I, I don't know if that's true of, of, of other people, um, but uh, I, I, I do think it, it feels a little like an affectation, which, again, it's not necessarily like you're talking about what is the justification. Like, so to me, if it is an affectation, okay, but to what end? Yeah. I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing, but there is, like, you've, I mean, this is... Uh, for 10 years now, I mean, whatever house of cards started is I think the first time I really noticed it. Yeah. But like, um, even though I only ever watched the one episode of house of cards, but, um, most like of your like prestige type of streaming shows are in a two to one aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like someone decided like a letterboxing looks prestigious. It looks more serious. Yeah. So we're going to have letterboxing on this show. We're going to do a two to one aspect ratio. Uh, and that feels like, a um, not great. I guess if I were making a show for Netflix, I would insist on a one seven, eight to one aspect ratio. Hmm. I get, yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on the, on the show that I'm making and if it would feel right. And mm. you know, uh, anyway, it's also like, I also hated, um, like the, I think it's the big pimpin' music video, which is like some sort of scope aspect ratio, except the letterboxes are white. Hmm. And it, that really bothers, like, no, the point of letterboxing is I'm supposed to, that's negative space. I'm supposed right. to pretend it's not there. But that's, yeah. again, this is just a hang up on my part. And clearly they knew that and they're yeah. trying to do something different. Yes, it's, it's intentional, but yeah. it's still, uh, still off putting. It bothers me, but yeah. I, that's, that's on me. All right, so your your turn to. So speaking of stuff that bothers uh, bothers you, or in this case me, but it's it's probably more me. Um, I did see. I want to make sure I get the middle initial right. Uh, John M. Chu's In the Heights. Um, okay. I saw it uh, in the theater. I was. Uh, I took a, a one. Uh, an overnight trip to my hometown of uh, Taft, California. It's a thing oh, that I do every once in a while, um, just to kind of hang out and do nothing. What um, kind of movie theater? Uh, a nice old timey movie theater that has been around for a very long so time. Like, privately owned, like not a, not a chain or? Oh no, no. Oh, that's no, great. It's just that's the great. Fox theater in, in Taft. That's fantastic. Um, in the Heights, so, two hours and 23 minutes. Sure is. Making it, I think, by three minutes, the longest episode, longest movie we'll talk about on the movie journal today. Uh, I've got a two hour and 20 minute movie coming up. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and my, my other one is less than two, but, uh, yeah. And frankly, like I, I, I was, I hadn't seen a movie in that theater since 1989 
And so I thought like, oh, I really want to, if there's something that's even vaguely interesting to me, mm. I, I will, I will go. And I had already seen a quiet place too. So, um, part two, pardon me. Um, and yeah, in the Heights, it's, I'll say this first off, I felt every one of those 223 minutes, oh. um, two hours and 22 minutes. What did I say? You said 223 minutes. You know what? I felt that. That's how I, that's how it felt to me. Um, I think it's a, it's the kind of musical that just for whatever reason doesn't work totally for me where the, the, there's like actual spoken dialogue, but then in songs, there'll be a lot of back and forth that's very conversational. And suddenly you just have like characters say, but because it's, it's like a modern day thing, you also have like super casual phrases sung back and forth. I'm just like, I don't know why, but it, bo- it, it bothers me. But the downside, I think that's just a, an issue with me. Yeah, I think that might be you thing, because that sounds interesting to me. Yeah. I think the thing that gets me is, I'm sure my, my, my view of what a musical is, not should be, but what it is, what it has been for me, is different than what Lin-Manuel Miranda is doing with this, which is, I can really only point to like two or two or three, maybe if I'm being more accurate, two and a half songs or sequences that I remember. Everything else feels like a ramp up to a song that isn't a song. Hmm. And that's the downside of having this kind of back and forth. Like we'll go into a, a quote unquote song, I guess. And then it's about a minute long. Uh, and then we've moved on either to another song or just to dialogue. And it's, in some ways, the idea of that is kind of neat that like this can that you can burst into song at any moment. Um, the downside is that it I don't know, it just it just feels like when you're accustomed to more pr- traditional musicals, as I am, uh, you just keep expecting more and then more doesn't come with a couple of notable exceptions, which I found tremendously satisfying. Um, and so. And it also me it also keeps me from being fully invested in the story. Pardon me. Um, the uh, I don't know what I wrote on on Letterbox was uh, all energy, no urgency, um, and that's how it feels to me. Is there's a lot of energy. All the performers are great, um, good voices, great choreography, really, and and it, the director is clearly like invest, investing a lot in this. And yet, at no point did I really care, partially because. Like once it once it becomes clear, like what are to the degree that we have a through line, what the through line is. I'm like, oh, oh, okay, uh, yeah, I guess I'm invested in that. Uh, but by that time, it's like two hours, um, and and I think there's also there's so many characters to try to, and their stories are not really that well developed, or a problem will come along, and then the resolution is super easy. Um, so it, it it feels a little bit scattered to me as well, and I do wonder if, for me, part of it, it part of that is the way the musical itself is structured. But I also think that the director, while some of those sequences are tremendously energetic and very well pulled off, I also think that there's some movie things that he's not doing. There comes a moment where it's a it's a pivotal moment. It is a climactic changes the trajectory of a character uh, moment and it has to do with a mural 
a mural is revealed. Mm-hmm. And my first thought was, what, what did the wall look like before? I didn't, in fact, I didn't even totally realize that a mural had been painted because I don't think the director had done a good enough job of showing that there wasn't a mural there before, whether it just be in framing or whatever it is. And so it's like, if we're going to get to that point and it's going to, again, cause a main character to change their entire perspective, uh, as a director, you need to do a better job of calling attention to that. It's like, I appreciate how much energy you're putting into this, but there's still some movie things that you're going to need to do in order to move the story along to the degree that it ha- the film has one. So it's, it's a film that I found more frustrating than anything else, which is a bummer because you have performers that are really, uh, likable and, yeah, I know that I'm definitely in the minority, but I think by and large, I I found the film just really unengaging for several reasons, um, and not for lack of trying, but just because of the mu- the musical itself, the type of songs that are there, and then also just some basic movie stuff that just wasn't done. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right. Well, I've uh, my next two, my remaining two movies, uh, a pair of rock docs. Nice. Back to back. Uh, And speaking of Lin-Manuel Miranda, he is one of the people interviewed in the first one, which is Quest Love's Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. Okay. Uh, And Tyler, uh, you know, you know, listeners know, I love rock. I love music. I'm often skeptical about rock docs. I went in sure. skeptical and uh, had that blown away. Summer of Love, or Summer of Soul, rather, um, fucking rules. It's so okay. good. Um, the uh, the movie is based on, to, uh, it's a documentary, um, so it's not based on anything. It's about a real thing. Um, there was a thing in 19, the summer of 1969 uh, called the... Um, I said the movie's called Summer of Soul, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Summer of Soul. Not there, Summer of Love. Not Summer of Sam. Yeah. Summer, Summer of, Soul. of Soul. Yeah. Um, so in 1969, there was a, a, a concert series called, uh, as part of the Harlem Cultural Festival, where every, I think it was Sunday um, throughout the summer, there were free concerts in the park. And it's like some huge names, you know, um, uh, the opening performance, we see uh, Stevie Wonder, but we also see B.B. Uh, King, The Fifth Dimension, Sly and the Family Stone, Mahalia Jackson. Uh, I'm probably leaving out so David Ruffin from The Temptations. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving out uh, a number of, of, of recognizable uh, names. It's huge. And the whole thing was a co-sponsorship with the city of New York. The whole thing was filmed. And then... Uh, the guy who filmed it like offers some explanations for why, which is there was 
the same summer as Woodstock and all anyone cared about was Woodstock. Nothing ever happened with the footage. It sat for 50 years until Questlove found it and decided I'm going to make a documentary about this uh, concert series. And I'm so glad that he, that he, that he did because he, um, uh, he, he, he did the number one thing I think you're supposed to do when you're making a music doc, which is respect the music itself. Yes. Um, you can almost like break the song, the, the movie into chapters, each one with a, with a song. So he'll like have, you know, it'll say the name of the artist, name of the song. They'll start playing. We'll watch, we'll see a good portion of the song. And then there will be a section of, backstory or like here's what else was going on or here's what was happening in the country that summer or whatever but like that performance in that song continues under each section you know okay. so the movie is um clearly broken into different performances um that we even though there's other things happening over them we hear them in full um which is uh with a couple of exceptions we get some snippets but mo- mostly we're hearing full performances of 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 songs um and uh there are a couple of moments that i um don't uh, i'm not ashamed to say that's a couple of these performances were so sublime that mm. like i got teary i just mm. watching these performances but also watching because another thing he does when he's interviewing people some of the artists who are still surviving other people who were held, were part of the festival also just people who were there he we don't see what they're seeing, but he shows them the footage. So we, we see them reacting to the footage. Yeah. So we see the, the first part that like got me all teary eyed. We see a couple of the surviving members of the fifth dimension watching their performance mm. and talking about how the fifth dimension was like this sort of like act without a country. They were seen as too pop for like the black market and too sure. black for like the pop market. And like, they felt that this performance in front of 50,000 black people, essentially 50,000 people, people of color, mostly black, um, and being so well received, which like is a huge moment for them. And you yeah. see them now, like probably in their eighties, um, uh, reliving it. And it's, it's very emotional. Um, uh, and, and there's a number of, uh, uh, great performances, uh, like that, but really it's just, uh, the movie is, uh, a, I talked about the Francois movie being uh, evocative. Uh, I mean, maybe it's just a year and a half of not being able to go to any concerts, but sure. um, Questlove does a really good job of evoking just how joyous and communal live music can be. Um, and it's the movie is also broken into sections, which I get the impression the weekends were broken into different. Like, so there's one section that's like very gospel heavy, and I guess that was the performance that weekend but then there's also one section that's very like um uh latino and afro-caribbean heavy and i think that's that's where lin-manuel miranda uh comes in he's he's interviewed along with his father um uh uh, about about these these artists uh you get yeah you got a lot of uh great great perspectives but really it's it's and i should expect no less from Questlove, who's one of the most notorious music music geeks mm-hmm. uh, on the planet it's first and foremost it respects the music it's okay. music first loved summer of love second movie I, justifies uh, your skepticism of well, rock dogs i'm i'm torn and okay. this is part of it is that this is the two hour and 20 minute movie uh edgar writes the sparks brothers oh okay which i'm my 
and I think I think I said uh, the same thing a few months ago on the movie journal about the the Bee Gees documentary, which is that the Sparks Brothers does not pass my test of would I be am I better served watching this than I would be spending the same amount of time just listening to Sparks? Right. Um, and no, you should just listen to Sparks. On the other hand, I think a lot of people partially including me are going to be more likely to listen to sparks because sure. this movie is a work of, uh, you know, what Questlove's doing in summer of soul is like, uh, he's, he's being a, an, an historian. He's capturing a moment, you know, Edgar Wright made this movie about sparks because he essentially wants to evangelize about sparks. He wants mm-hmm. other people to love, uh, to, to love sparks. And I feel like he will achieve that. The, um, I'm not going to pretend that I was, I know I'd like try to, uh, be with it with music. I've always known sparks as the band that my friends who were bigger music geeks than I am like, and that I've never like really connected with. I've, you know, I've, I've listened to them here and there, but I feel it. I feel like I get them more because of this movie. I feel mm-hmm. like I've heard more and maybe part of it is because they've been around since the sixties, uh, and are, and are still around. They've had 25 studio albums and they, are very chameleonic and maybe I just like heard the wrong, you know, I, the, in college I had a friend who played me what, a, uh, the album, the 1979 album, uh, number one in heaven. That was probably the first time I heard them. And I, um, remember thinking like, yeah, I get why music geeks like this. Yeah. But at that time in my life, like super synth heavy, like, um, uh, stuff was just not gonna yeah. speak to me. Um, and maybe because of that, I didn't go and be like, Oh, I could have listened to this, earlier 70s album that's like proto-punk or whatever but i i didn't now i maybe will i almost certainly will go listen to more sparks because of the movie but the movie itself is still it's so standard like just series of famous people musicians or famous music geeks saying oh man sparks is so great and then like little stories that are like animated, like, you know, there's little touches of animation and little like clever. Oh, that, that's a clever visual. And even it's clever quote unquote. Like, I feel like the the bar for visual cleverness is higher for Edgar Wright than for most directors. That is my, when you say that it's just like any other thing, like that really disappoints me. The idea of him making a documentary sounded really interesting to me. Yeah, I would, I would, I wish it had been, but he, he basically just made an, he made a pretty standard rock doc, but he made it. It's one of the better versions of that, that I've seen. Yeah. And it's not like about, I don't know, the fucking Eagles or whatever. It's, I know everyone rags on the Eagles. I, I feel like I had to say that like the big Lebowski made it cool to dislike the Eagles. And sure. I want to be like, no, I actually dislike the Eagles. I'm not right. trying to be cool. They, they suck. Um, but like the fact that it's about someone, uh, a group that is, so under the radar to most people, yeah. I think makes it more worthwhile. So I say good for Edgar Wright for achieving what he set out to achieve. But I will say I have a new least favorite Edgar Wright movie oh, <laughs> at the same right. time. It well, was well, baby driver. It was baby driver. Okay, um, yeah. but I, I still think he has yet to make a bad movie, but yeah. uh, baby driver and this seem like, and it feels like someone below his skill set. You'd feel like someone who, for whom music is such a big role, plays such a big role in his filmmaking mm-hmm. that he would be able to, when he makes a movie, albeit a documentary about music, that it would be 
such that'd be uh it would have his stamp on it and uh that bums me out i was actually thinking of going to see that and uh yeah i don't think i would like i would not pay okay theater money to see this this is definitely a see it at home okay um with spotify open and start like (laughs) or whatever you know start saving uh (laughs) favorites on the albums that sound and songs that sound good to you uh because yeah i do think i will listen to more sparks because of this movie so mission accomplished right now david I feel like you are somebody... Also, it's two hours and 20 minutes long. Yeah. It's a very long time <laughs> yeah. for a rock doc. Sorry, I cut you off. That's fine. Uh, so I feel like you are better attuned to like understanding like uh, like corporate speak, uh, partially because of like your... In an office? Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and so... That said, I have tried very hard to figure out whether the movie I'm about to talk about is under embargo or not. Um, it's the one that I agreed to review, uh-huh. and I looked in their press notes. I looked in your email, and I couldn't. I couldn't quite tell. So I'm going to ask you right talking. now. Just start I talking. Will, I will look it up, and then I guess we can cut it out if if it is. Um, yeah, I think you're fine. Okay, I think so too, based on what I looked at. But, but I also I've been I, I've been wrong before because I don't know if things are like returning to post. I feel like during the pandemic, places got real uh, strict with embargoes about sure. stuff that I didn't I didn't understand why this was embargoed. You know, um, what is the date? Yeah, you can't talk about this. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> it says very clearly here. Did I, is this not what I forwarded? Oh, you're right. I just copied and pasted that. Uh, part. I didn't copy and paste the embargo part. Oh, okay. That's that's, that's on me. Yeah. Okay. Um, until until Monday. Well, can. it's nice to know I'm not totally crazy. Talk about it.